This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Today, I'd like to welcome Benjamin Keyes to Knowledge at Wharton. He's a professor of real estate here, and we're going to discuss his new paper titled Affordability, Financial Innovation, and the Start of the Housing Boom. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so this paper looks at mortgage lending practices, uh, specifically the use of non-traditional mortgages that we saw around the time of uh, the financial crisis and then before that at ar- uh, around the time of that other housing boom, or the, I guess the turn of the century. Uh, and, and one of the ideas is, did that or how much did that contribute to, in part to uh, housing price run-ups or, or, or bubbles uh, uh, during those periods? Uh, so would you f- first briefly explain the overall idea of your concept of the paper and why mortgages that really loosen up on the credit asset side can end up leading to consequences down the road, not all of which may be good? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you know, when we're thinking about the credit boom writ large, um, there's a few different dimensions along which we might think that credit supply expanded. And I think there's a growing consensus that credit supply really sharply expanded and that one of the main directions that it expanded to was private label securitization. So these would be mortgages that wouldn't be held on banks' balance sheets and they wouldn't be held by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, the GSEs. Instead, these were being held by investors um, privately. And so there are a lot of famous stories. Think of like the big short as investors in these private label securities. And if you start to dig into the types of loans that are being made at that time, Credit is really expanding on sort of three different dimensions. So one dimension is credit scores. They're simply lending to people who have a weaker credit history. Another is down payments. So people are just putting down smaller and smaller amounts, sometimes nothing at all. And the third dimension, and the dimension that we really explore in this paper, is about the ability to pay. It's about your income. How much is that monthly payment going to be? And we focus in on a set of mortgages that are we describe as either alternative mortgages or non-traditional mortgages in the paper, But what we're really getting at is any payment that's going to be less than your traditional 30-year fixed rate payment. So this might come about through a teaser rate where you have some artificially low rate for a couple of years. It may come about through a negatively amortizing loan where actually the the balance increases over the first few years or an interest-only loan where you're paying interest uh, but nothing, no principal for the first few years. Or they may just stretch out the term of the loan. So now it's a 40-year loan. And relative to a 30-year loan, your monthly payments are going to fall. So we really wanted to focus in on the the prevalence of these types of contracts and think about what role they played in the boom. So once you focused in on them, what what did you find? Well, there's this challenge, I think, in in sort of a chicken and egg problem with these types of loans. So on the one hand, they may be used as an affordability tool for uh, housing markets that have already gotten very expensive. So house prices have already gone up. Um, And so in that case, you know, house prices precede the use of these contracts where house prices have already gone up quite a bit. And now I can't simply afford a 30 year fixed rate at the prices that are prevailing right now. So a teaser rate is going to what's going what's going to get me in the door. The other way is that the availability of credit actually fuels the rise of house prices. And so you can sort of think about the causality running in either of those directions. If these products now become available People who otherwise weren't able to access the market or investors who have to put very little down for a year or two can now access the market, and they're going to bid up prices. So what we do in the paper is we try to disentangle these two stories using a couple of different approaches. 
what did you find? I mean, what, did one dominate over the other, or was it pretty much balanced out? Yeah, I mean, we really find sort of a tale of two booms. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the early booms, and when we're thinking here of the late 90s and early 2000s, you know, prices started to rise in places like Boston and San Francisco really early on. Um, and some of that was coming out of the tech boom, actually. So a lot of that is, you know, the, the early momentum around the tech boom, the dot-com boom. Uh, I mean, you really start to see prices rise, but they sort of rise in line with incomes in those markets, at least at first. And we're really focused in on the start of the boom, sort of what sets off the, um, the rise in house prices. And, and so you see this sort of early boom in the, the Bostons and San Francisco's of the world being less driven by these types of products. In contrast, if you think about the frothiest, bubbliest markets, so think of Las Vegas or Phoenix, places mm-hmm. that didn't really have this sort of historical <laughs> shock, absolutely thinking yeah. about Florida um, and parts of, of California, like the Inland Empire, those are the places where it looks like the usage of these affordability products preceded the sharp rises in house prices. And that's kind of interesting because that seems to suggest mm-hmm. That it wasn't really an affordability issue in these places. It was really a credit supply issue that now a different set of borrowers can access these markets. And they're, they're relaxing this particular dimension of access. And that's going to lead to more bidders willing to bid up the price of houses. So what's, what's the net result of that? I mean, as you said, there's two things going on. On the one hand, more people have access. And we think of that as a good thing, increasing home ownership and all that. On the other hand, if it's just a sugar high, and it's just like prices are going up, and they're just chasing prices, which is going to some someday reverse and cause problems. Then, then it's not a good thing. So, did you come up with it one view, or it's just too complicated to have a, a black and white answer to that? So, I think you know, at least in the context of the recent housing boom and bust, it's pretty clear that there was a lot of over overinflated prices, mm-hmm. and so the sugar high that you're describing is exactly the way to think about it. Um, that there was a big crash in house prices, and in some markets, a disproportionate crash. You mean in when house they didn't prices. check whether I actually had an income or was employed? That was well. That it's was sort a... of an amazing feature of the yeah. housing boom is that uh, you know checking your ability to pay your mortgage was was simply not a requirement. And we look at things like the low documentation or even no documentation loans, where you simply could state your income and say, "Sure, I make one hundred and fifty thousand dollars." And no one really went to check it. And, you know, so I I think this sort of gets back to some of the mechanisms about the the housing crisis writ large. I mean, why were we willing to allow this to happen? And you really have to start to focus on this private label securitization market, a market where investors Mm -hmm. are really far removed from the people making the loans on the ground. And so you think of the sort of now canonical stories of, you know, German pension funds investing in a portfolio of subprime mortgages coming out of Florida they're not checking incomes. They're not checking people's bank accounts. Uh, and so you sort of start to put this dis- distance between those groups. And that's some research that I've done in the past thinking about these low documentation loans in particular. So I think this study really you know, focuses in on this ability to repay dimension. And you've seen some interesting reforms in the market in exactly this space. So mm-hmm. I think you know, our work is kind of even though we're focused on um, some years back in, in the boom, you know, there's still ongoing discussions about the, the ability to pay requirements mm-hmm. um, related to mortgage underwriting these days. So there are new rules that make that kind of loosey-goosey lending a lot more difficult. It's quite a bit more difficult. So there's two policies uh, that really came out of the reforms from the Dodd-Frank Act, um, the Qualified Mortgage and the qu- Qualified Residential Mortgage, and those um, relate to sort of the, the the ability for lenders to securitize loans um, and not retain risk on their books. And those loans cannot have teaser rates. So that's an important 
piece to this. They also mm-hmm. can't have 40-year mortgage terms. And it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, we're starting to see this now, and, and we can certainly talk about this more, as interest rates have risen. Um, and they've sort of stabilized in the last six months, but we really saw this at the tail end of 2018. As interest rates started to go up, we started to see some lenders, even very traditional lenders, starting to make these loans that are have some shadows of the types of loans that were uh, so popular during the boom. And now these are not being called subprime or non-prime or Alt-A. The new name for them is non-qualified mortgage or non-QM. And I think people are going to start to hear more about these types of loans. So these, how close to the line do they get? Because there's, <laughs> there's a new line. We, we drew a new line. We have new rules, as you, as you noted. And so how are these different from what preceded them? Yeah, so I think there's quite a bit more documentation in terms okay. of income and assets. I think that's the probably the key difference right now. But you're starting to see slightly different standards around uh, around documentation. Um, and this has always been a challenge for folks who are self-employed, who don't have traditional incomes and don't have a W-2 that they can report uh, quite as easily. But then you're starting to see some things that look like teaser rates. You're starting to see some contracts that look like maybe interest-only contracts where you know, you're only paying interest on the loan for three, two, three, five years, and then you start to repay the principal at, at that point. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you're starting to see these nibbles around the edges of those of those requirements, and the 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 rules are quite clear on this. And so, those are going to hold, and that means that these lenders are either going to need to hold these loans on their books as whole loans, mm-hmm. where they're going to be exposed to the risk directly, or if they try to. Um, securitize these loans on a secondary market, they're going to have to bear some of that residual risk. How how much? Is there a a percentage of ownership they have to retain, so-called skin in the game? Yeah, so it's going to vary quite a bit, um, but generally they're going to have to hold at least 5% of the skin in the game, and there are a bunch of different ways in which they've talked about calculating that, so it's uh, it's less of an obvious calculation. That doesn't sound like a lot to me. It doesn't sound like a lot. (laughs) Okay, I'm not wrong Um, about that. And different securitization markets have different sort of thresholds for uh, what the right amount of risk retention is, how do we discipline behavior in these markets, um, there's certainly a lot of evidence which which seems to point to the need for some form of mm-hmm. risk retention, that that is going to align the incentives better better than not. But right now, there are a lot of, um, a lot of ways to avoid these kinds of rules. Mm-hmm. And so if anything that's sold to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, for instance, doesn't require risk retention. Mm. So Fannie and Freddie are bearing a lot of that risk. Now, mm-hmm. they haven't moved their standards into this direction either. Mm-hmm. But we saw this at the tail end of the boom as well, that Fannie and Freddie started to relax their standards mm-hmm. to try to keep up with the public, the private market, I should say. So I think, you know, all of this is to say we're, we're not nearly where we were in terms of 2004 to 2006 right. in terms of lax underwriting. But I think we're starting to see those baby steps as interest we know, rates rise. We know slopes can be slippery. Absolutely. So, I, I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me, and, and you talked about, you know, you know these the the, the Standards became looser and looser, and I mean, it's sort of a little easy for me to imagine these little small mortgage shops around the country that would just kind of loosen up and loosen up and loosen up. What? <clears throat> but then, you know, when they when they went to uh, the rating agencies, that's where you know I almost have a picture of a cartoon where they're throwing in one end of this big machine, you know, kitchen sinks and everything else, and out come you know AA rated bonds, which is what the German pension companies were buying. So in a way, they were they were just they weren't looking past that first line of defense. They were saying, okay, the rating agencies say they're good. I'll trust them because they've been right most of the time, if not all the time. And but it's that that step is, you know, it has to get 
past that step. Right, right. Yeah, I think so, you know, this comes back to a much bigger discussion about sort of where, you know, who do we hold accountable for some of the mistakes yeah. that were made? And certainly the rating agencies are are near the top of that list, yeah. if not at the top, right? So if you look at the difference between the number of AAA-rated corporations versus the number of AAA-rated mortgage bonds, it's just not even close. There's mm-hmm. so many of these mortgage bonds out there with a AAA rating. And if you think about the way in which these loans are bundled and securitized, in principle, you know, and this is something that I teach my students here at Warden, in principle, that th- these can really serve a benefit of, of diversification sure. and you can get different types of investors willing to bear different types of risks, but but the model really matters. The underlying model matters a ton. And, you know, this is something the rating agencies got wrong. They just simply didn't realize how correlated these different markets were. Mm-hmm. So historically, you'd say, well, why should housing markets in Florida be correlated with housing markets in California? Mm-hmm. They have different local economies, different industries. One's going to be more reliant on one industry than another. But when that's being fueled by credit, and credit is a national phenomenon at that point, then that's going to amp up the mm-hmm. amount of correlation across these markets. And so absolutely, I think, you know, you look back at the mistakes that the credit rating agencies made, and we sort of haven't really replaced that. And so one of the things that I think is kind of keeping this type of lending to a, to a relative minimum, now it's growing quickly, but it's still less than 5% of the market is we haven't really seen a rebirth of this private label securitization market. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a real lack of trust mm-hmm. among the types of investors who would potentially invest in those mm-hmm. kinds of AAA rated mm-hmm. bonds to say, uh, we learned our lesson uh, last time around. And so at least, you know, for the time being, mm-hmm. uh, some of these firms have had long enough memories. It's just mm-hmm. a question of how long those memories last. What are, what are some of the other practical implications of, of this work? Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the things that we're hoping to use this work for is to give um, policymakers a potential set of tools to keep an eye on markets. I think this is a really nice indicator for when markets are looking a little bit frothy, a little bit bubbly, and we start to see shifts to these types of contracts. Um, And one of the things that we did in in writing this paper was we built a a county-level data set where we aggregated over 60 million mortgages and collapsed them down. I wanted to ask you about that because it's really impressively comprehensive. It's a big data problem, um, and my co-authors played a huge role in that, to collapse the data down and um, to to summarize this at the county-by-month level. Okay, here's what lending conditions look like at the county-by-month level. And our data set is not a a rolling panel, so we're not updating it monthly, but I think it's something that policymakers should be using as a a potential tool to track county-by-county where are we seeing uh, house prices tracking incomes Mm -hmm. more closely and where are we seeing them deviate. And in the places where they're deviating, are they deviating on those three dimensions I mentioned at the beginning, down payments, credit scores, or uh, ability to pay? And if they were, if they were deviating on those three, then what? Well, then the, then the policy question gets a little trickier, right? It's, you know, do we take the punch bowl away from the party or not? And yeah. so if these lending rules that are currently in place are, are sufficiently tight, um, then maybe the policymakers don't need to do anything to react mm-hmm. to that. They also don't have a lot of good levers to to negotiate policy at a county by county level. So mm-hmm. they may have to work with state agencies mm-hmm. or or others. I think one of the other big lessons of the crisis was that these lenders are going to, to find uh, a sort of regulatory home that's most relaxed. Right. So if they're not being regulated by folks mm-hmm. in Washington and they're yeah. regulated by state regulators, mm. this could be something that could be very useful for yeah. state regulators so least, to keep an eye on as well. At least there's an early warning system, a tripwire. People, what they do with the information 
is another discussion, I guess, but at least they could have that warning. Yeah, I, I, I hope this is something that um, that policymakers can can think about yeah. building themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, folks at the Federal Reserve certainly have access to this data. Mm-hmm. Some other folks do as well. And so continuing to, to do this type of market-by-market uh, market monitoring seems like a really useful thing to do. Did you mostly find what you expected, or did you find some things that were unexpected? I, so I think quite a bit of this was unexpected. We didn't expect to see this divide between the two sets of booms quite as cleanly mm-hmm. um, as we saw, to just see these two differences where, again, the early markets, the Bostons and San Francisco's, it doesn't really look like these kind of affordable mortgage products are really a key contributor. So that's like that's like basic economics, fundamentals. They're driving, the fundamentals are driving it. That seems like healthy, a healthy economy, or at least healthier. Healthier, yeah, yeah. certainly yeah. a healthier economy. I mean, there's definitely challenges um, linking incomes to house prices, given all of the frictions that come yeah. with home building and all the barriers to building in a lot of these cities. But then to see what happened in the later booms and to really see these shifts away from uh, private, uh, or sorry, away from public markets and towards these, these uh, securitized loans that have these really different terms. I, I think, you know, this is really the first paper that's taken the ability to pay dimension as seriously as we could. And I think that came as a surprise to us that it was just such a stark result that you saw these blips in the data that just jumped out at you of the popularity of these different contracts, you know, to the point where in 2005, about 60% of all mortgage loans in the U.S. for purchase have at least one of these features. 60%. Yeah. That's pretty striking. So um, are you going to follow up this research? And if so, what, what will you look at next? So I think we'll continue to to try to build this data going forward to keep an eye on this new these new policies. I think one of the interesting things about the the QM policies that I mentioned before is they haven't really been binding for the last ten years. You know, lenders have been uh, sufficiently uh, restrained. They were burned pretty badly by the financial mm-hmm. crisis, um, and certainly Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac tightened their standards as well. And again, there's really a non-existent private label securities market. So for, for basically 10 years after the crisis, you had really little interest in taking this kind of risk. You know, right. why bother? Interest right. rates are low. People are happy to lock in a 30-year fixed rate right. at 4%, and that's mm-hmm. historically an amazing interest rate. So there just hasn't been a lot of interest in thinking about other ways to pull people into the market. Mm-hmm. And now it's really as interest rates rise that I think we're going to see more mm-hmm. responses in this direction. And so... Um, so that's what I'd like to do going forward. And maybe we have to wait for some more data to come in, actually, that this mm-hmm. may be, uh, you know, too early to tell. But I think as interest rates rise over the next year or two, which is what folks are forecasting, it'll be really interesting to see how these kind of products re- re-enter the market and who's using them. So uh, anything about this paper that I haven't asked you that would be important for our listeners to know? I think, you know, one thing that... that people spend a lot of time talking about is the role of the government in in the housing boom and, and how much are they to blame. And we sort of talked a little bit about the credit rating agencies and whether they needed additional scrutiny and regulation. And I certainly think they did. I think the kinds of stress tests that the Fed is doing now. But it's one of the interesting things we find is that the, the Federal Housing Administration, the FHA, was really a non-player in, in the housing crisis. And some of this is because they had extremely low uh, loan limits. So they simply couldn't make the big oversized loans that you needed to buy these expensive houses in these expensive markets. But one of the really cleanest things that comes out of our research 
is that the shift towards the private label securities market is a shift away from the FHA. Mm -hmm. So the FHA held the line in terms of their standards uh, during the boom. And I don't think that's something that, that sort of gets enough attention. And so when we're thinking about the different ways in which different federal agencies can respond to this type of risk. Mm -hmm. And we see Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac taking on more risk in mm -hmm. 2006 uh, and especially 2007 while the FHA didn't. It's useful to go back and think mm -hmm. a little bit about uh, the oversight of those two different groups, how they're managed, and how they're constrained. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much for coming in. We appreciate it and uh, look forward to hearing more about this research. Thanks for having me. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.